Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. As Jesus continued down the road, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus replied, Why do you call me good? No one is good except the one God. You know the commandments. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he responded, I've kept all of these things since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. He said, you are lacking one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But the man was dismayed at this statement and went away saddened because he had many possessions. Looking around, Jesus said to his disciples, it will be very hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. His words startled the disciples. So Jesus told them again, children, it's difficult to enter God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. They were shocked even more and said to each other, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them carefully and said, it's impossible with human beings, but not with God. All things are possible for God. May the living word of God speak to us through these ancient words of scripture. Friends, today we begin a brand new sermon series about out of context, taking five Bible verses and putting them back in their place. Um, these are verses that are well known and probably uh, most often lifted from the pages of the Bible and taken entirely out of context, used in the wrong way or maybe even worse, potentially harmful ways. And so there are many dangers that lie with taking something like that out of context. And it lies mostly in this potential is misuse issue. When the Bible is used as a weapon or to prove a personal point or belief, it can be very dangerous. So you see, the Bible is both a whole story, the story of God's love for creation and people, and individual books, chapters, verses. And taking one little verse out of all of that, out of context, is very dangerous but it is even worse when the meaning is altered by doing so. And so we're putting these five verses back in their context. And before we can do that, I'd like to explore a little bit about what the different contexts are that we're talking about here. The first is biblical. It's probably the most obvious. It's the easiest one, but also maybe often the most ignored. And this context asks, what is this passage or what passage is this a part of? Where is this larger passage in the book that we're reading from? What happened immediately before the passage? What comes right after it? Where does it fit in the larger larger scheme and story of the Bible. So it invites us to consider that every sentence is part of a paragraph, paragraph part of a larger passage, the passage part of a larger chapter, chapter part of a book, you get the idea, book part of the Bible, that there's these little ones that keep, keeps growing into larger understandings. And we can't understand one verse without knowing what's around it. 
really good example of this is that we can't really understand why it's so powerful that Joseph in the Old Testament forgave his brothers without knowing why that they sold him into slavery in the first place. And then this context, this biblical context of putting the Bible literally back in its place, ties closely to the second one, and that is the literary context. This looks at the Bible as a composition, that it's more than just the divine words of God, which we understand it to be, but that there's a literary component to it as well. And this context asks, what type of biblical scripture am I reading? There are many different kinds in the Bible. There's history, it's a misleading name, but that's sort of the gospels, the stories about Jesus, Genesis and Exodus, the stories of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. That's sort of the historical books that tell the stories. Then there's law, Exodus and Deuteronomy, the laws of the Jewish faith and the Ten Commandments are in there. There's also prophetic works, major prophets like Isaac or Jeremiah, minor prophets that you may not have heard of like Amos or Habakkuk. <laughs> There's also New Testament prophecy, and that sometimes is ascribed to Revelation. There's poetry in the Psalms, there's wisdom in Proverbs, there's the letters of the New Testament, which is much of the New Testament, like Romans and Corinthians and all of those books that we read as letters from a person to typically a church. But the other literary part to this is also, what is the original language? You know that I've talked about that a lot, that I love looking back at the original language of the Bible. What is it that it means? What is it that that intention is of that original word? A really good example of this is that often we'll hear the word slave in typically Old Testament, but sometimes also New Testament contexts. That's word has very particular connotations for us, especially in our U.S. history and what that means. It has, give, brings up specific images and understandings. While the original word might actually translate as slave, it actually means more about servant. And so when we read about servant or slave in the Bible, it typically means more of our understanding about servant. That's what I mean by the literary context of the Bible. Then there's the cultural and historical context. This one probably gets us in the most trouble. We don't know what first century life was like. Forget about 2,000 years before that. They had different customs and saying and cultures, and it all impacts the way that an audience would have read a particular writing or passage, especially versus how the original audience would have read it with our context and our culture versus their context and their culture. And so this context asks, what was happening in the world? What's going on in sort of the historical perspective in, to the people around those who would be reading it? What traditions or cultural markers are impactful? A really good example of this context and putting it back in place is the book of Revelation. It is probably the most misunderstood book in the whole Bible. It's where we get our images of the second coming from, people being swept up to heaven, others being left behind, four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it seems like it's a prediction of future events. Well, it's actually, from a, a source criticism standpoint, it's actually a look at the cultural or historical perspective of the time. And we find that Christians at the time were being heavily persecuted. And we find out this is actually a book written in response to that, but in code. The beasts are the rulers at the time, the saved are the Christians who are being persecuted, and so on. There's, there's ways to connect what's happening historically and culturally with what was happening in Revelation. 
The final context to consider is theological. It considers the message of the book, the point that the passage or the larger book is trying to make. And so it asks, who is the author and who is his audience? Things that are understood differently if you're a gospel writer who's writing to a Jewish audience. You can write about Jewish laws and customs. They'll know about that. But if you're writing to a Gentile audience, they'll have no idea about Jewish customs and so or Jewish theology. And so we ask, why did this person write this way? What is the theological point that he was trying to make in his writing? And we can pretty much say he, that most of the Bible was most likely written by men. We don't have any evidence to support anything other than that. A good example of this kind of contextual uh, knowledge is that each gospel was written for a particular audience, and there is evidence of that in each of the gospels. So for example, Matthew was written for a Jewish audience who had adopted Christianity as their new way of life. And that's why it starts with a genealogy of Jesus and traces his heritage throughout the ancestors of the faith because that was his audience. Luke was written from a more social perspective. It was lifting up the widow, the orphan, the, the poor. So we hear a lot about that in Luke. In John, John was always seeking to prove that Jesus was simply the embodiment of God on earth, less about his human side and more about being focused on how Jesus was divine. And so we draw theological conclusions from, uh, from the larger writing based on this theological context. So today we start thinking about these four different contexts. We start with Mark 10.25. It was bolded in our reading for this morning. And it says, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. That is a particularly painful verse for us to start with, isn't it, in our context? Because if we take it literally, a camel, one of the largest animals that this author would have known about, trying to go through the eye of a needle, a tiny little hole that I can never, ever get a thread through. Just not possible. And it is not that it's just not easy, right? It is that it is impossible. And so it's been used through, since Jesus uttered these words throughout history, as a condemnation of the wealthy on those who have means. And I think it's particularly uncomfortable for a context such as Westfield, which has some of the greater means in our area. It causes us a little bit of discomfort to think about this, that Jesus is condemning us, makes us squirm in our seats, makes us think about maybe selling our car, our house, our stock options, all to follow Jesus. Likely reaction is, forget that, I will take my things, keep my things, and take my chances. Well, I want to address this from the get-go right away because it is probably the thing that will keep you from hearing anything else about this passage if I don't. First of all, this is not about you. This is not about you as an individual sitting here in church being condemned for what we have, being told by Jesus to go sell it all and give the money away. If we read the Bible literally, yeah, it certainly sounds like that. But we don't read the Bible that way. That's why we talk about context. Context takes us away from the literal and into the meaning behind it. So Jesus isn't talking about you or me. The author isn't talking about you or me. Because first, wealth is relative, right? The people of Westfield, Scotch Plains, Vanwood, Cranford, etc. the wealth here looks different than wealth in Irvington or the school in Jersey City that we've been making the focus of our outreach. This area would certainly be considered wealthy when we compare, but 
We can't compare our lives to that of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. There is simply no comparison. And so where does it stop? Where does the wealth stop? And actually, if we think about the US as a whole, a first world country where many of those who would be considered poor are far wealthier than those in a third world country. So this is why we can't actually make this as a fair comparison. The passage simply cannot be about just wealth. The verse cannot simply condemn all those with wealth because it would be just about everyone in the world when compared to another who might have less. So if it's not simply about possessions, what is it about? Well, let's put it back in context. First of all, when we're talking about wealth in biblical times, we're actually talking about men who would have had possessions that don't only include their things. It would have also been their wife, their children, their property. It wouldn't have been about money per se, but about all the things that kept them from relying on God. And we'll get to that in a second. So why then does Jesus use this example of, an eye, of the camel and the eye of the needle? Now, Jewish teachers often used metaphor to get to their point. It was a common practice. And so it's meant to suggest that we are not talking about here something that isn't actually possible. It's not in the realm of possibilities, but we're not meant to take it literally in that way. It's metaphor. It's supposed to open us up to what is possible, what isn't possible in the more broad sense of the word. Now, some suggested that there was actually a gate at the entrance to Jerusalem called the, quote, eye of the needle gate and that a camel with a large load on his back would have to duck down in order to actually physically get through that gate. Now that's not easy, but it's certainly not impossible. But that has been largely debunked, so if you hear that as an interpretation of this passage, don't pay much attention to that because it's probably not accurate. It popped up much later. And in fact, I think that it waters down the ultimate intention of this passage. And so if we put this verse now in the larger story, in the larger biblical context, this is actually Jesus' reaction to a man who asks what he can do to have eternal life. And that right there is the whole problem. Not only is this passage not about wealth or even a person's response to it, it is in fact his response about the camel and the eye of the needle as a general statement about people, not as a condemnation of one man. It's about so-called works righteousness, and this is the theological context. This is the idea that there is anything that we can do that will actually earn our way into eternal life, that we can ever possibly have any impact by doing something, any impact on our sense of eternal life by doing something. And it's right there in the first verse of the passage that sets the stage for Jesus's answer. Good teacher, the guy asks, what must I do to obtain eternal life? In fact, all of the commandments that are then cited as ones that he keeps, they're from what's called the second table of the Ten Commandments. The first table is verses 1 through 4. 4 is kind of a bridge. 4 through 10 is the second table. And they're all about the external expressions, the way that we relate to humanity. The first four are typically about the way that we relate to God. But the second set are about how we relate to each other. They're about things that are seen, things that we can do, outer expressions of faith. It's not about that sense of inner faith or eternity or eternal life. The man makes it about what must be done to obtain eternal life. And that's problematic because we know that 
Humans aren't in the business of eternal life. Only God is. And so this passage isn't actually about wealth at all, even though that is typically what we focus on. It's about our life with God. It's about whether on this earth or in an eternal sense, what does our life look like with God? It's about whether we can do anything to impact our place in the kingdom of God. It's about whether we have any power over eternal life. It's about what we value. Right before this, Jesus blesses the children and shows that he values even the smallest of voices and beings in his company. And it's not wasted on me that we had a child sitting up here today reminding us just what this is all about. It's about what impedes our understanding of eternal life. You see, the things that this world tells us have power, wealth, possessions, personal worth, beauty, authority. These things impede our ability to put our trust in God. They trick us into thinking that we can take care of ourselves that we don't need God or all that God offers, that ultimately our fate lies in our own hands and our ability to manipulate or move things around in a way that's beneficial for us. It lulls us into a sense of self-reliance. And the more of these things that we have, the more we come to rely on them and believe them to be our saving grace, the harder it gets. That is why I think that the gate idea waters down the ultimate purpose of this passage, because getting a loaded camel through a gate in the city walls is hard, but it's not impossible. But through the eye of the needle, of course, that certainly is. But it demonstrates that when we put our trust elsewhere, when we think that we can have a handle on our own eternal life or on our participation in the kingdom of God, that is what we're told is impossible. Ultimately, this passage, this verse that we often hear taken out of context, to condemn those who have means. It's not about that. It's not about wealth. Even though the title typically becomes the rich young ruler, here he's just a man. A man who we find out has wealth only at the end of the passage. Because it's not about that. It's not about whether a wealthy individual or a wealthy nation can, can or cannot get into the kingdom of God. It's actually entirely about God. It's about God's ability to take the impossible or the not easy and make it possible. If we relied on ourselves, if the criteria for any person, wealthy or poor, or old or young, haughty or humble, was based on what humans can provide themselves, then friends, we are all doomed. And that is why this verse that seems to condemn those who esteem wealth needs to be put in its place. It needs to be in the place where none of that matters. All that matters is God's love and grace and kingdom overcome any character trait that we lack or any possession that we have. Because it's not about us. It's about God. It's about God's love. It's about God's grace that overcomes any and all human challenges that stand between us and God. Wealth here is just the example because we can't do this on our own. We can't become a part of the kingdom of God on our own. We need God. We need the grace of Jesus Christ. That is the fundamental reality of being human. And it is hard. It's hard because we like to rely on ourselves, on our abilities, on our traits, on our possessions, and our wealth. We rely on ourselves all the time. 
But that's why this is so dynamic of a statement, that to become one with God, we have to give that up. We have to give up relying on ourselves and anything of this world. And it doesn't necessarily mean taking Jesus's words literally, selling everything and dropping our nets to leave our lives behind. But it does mean taking the power away from those possessions, from the things of our earthly world, and placing instead our trust in God. And when our possessions no longer have power, when our wealth no longer has a hold on us, when our need to control our lives and our own fate is instead left to God, we might find that giving it away becomes just a little bit easier. Friends, to become one with God, we have to rely on God. We have to put our faith in God's promises. We have to be called away from our lives as we knew them and take the great step of faith onto the unknown path that is the one that God lays before us. And the grace that is God and God's promises is that with God, that is actually possible. Amen.